It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you all in 2019 and to bring in a new year with this uh, Ask Anything Sunday. Um, Before we get started, uh, especially when we're addressing big questions, I think it's always right to start with an attitude of prayer and to kind of seek God's wisdom. And so I wanted to start there. So would you please uh, bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for the blessing of a new year and the chance to once more be gathered together as your people. And Lord, we do pray that this new year would be a year in which we are seeking you. We are looking for you. We are bringing our questions to you. And so this morning, as we bring a few of those questions, Holy Spirit, we pray for wisdom. That you would give us guidance and insight. That you would provide answers. And Lord, where, where there are no answers or where the answer is to wait, Lord, we pray that we would have the humility and the patience to do so. But Lord, I ask that, uh, that you would grant me wisdom. Uh, that all that I say and do would be done uh, for your glory and in your name. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So as I said at the beginning of the service, this is an Ask Anything weekend. Uh, a weekend in which we take your questions and we take some time, the sermon time primarily, to address them. And part of the reason why we are doing uh, this series is because of the, uh, doing this, this weekend is because of the fact that Jesus loved questions. In fact, if you look at Jesus' life and his ministry, he never turned down an honest question. And he often used questions of his own to help people grow in their understanding of God and of what it means to follow him because Jesus knew, he understood that questions were an important part of our spiritual journey. And so he wasn't afraid of questions. He often addressed questions uh, head on. Uh, Sometimes if he didn't address a question head on, it was usually because the premise behind the question is what really needed to be dealt with. Um, But he loved questions and and didn't uh, shy away from them. And so this weekend, uh, that's really what we're doing. We're taking a couple of your questions and trying to answer them as best as we can. And the reason we're doing this is because it's really kicking off a series that we're about to start next weekend called Explore God in which we are going to be looking at seven of the biggest questions that many people in our culture today have about God, faith, and life. And some of those questions, just to let you know so that you're uh, aware, is uh, questions like, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus really God? Is the Bible reliable? And can I know God personally? They're really good questions, which starting next weekend with that first question, does life have a purpose? We're going to dedicate an entire sermon to those questions. So if you asked one of those questions on your card this morning, I hope that you will forgive me for saying, stay tuned. Because guess what? Your question will get an entire sermon all to itself later on in this series. So if I do get one of those questions, I'm going to defer it. I'll let you know that I got the question, and I'll let you know what week you should come back. Um, but, uh, but, but, yeah, but we are going to be tackling some of those big questions in that series. But, but this morning, we want to just start off by, at, by looking at a couple of questions that you have brought with you. Questions that maybe aren't going to be covered in that series, or questions that maybe will only be touched on. I I can maybe take some time this morning to go a little bit more in depth. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about how this is going to work. I very likely will not get to every single question that is asked. 
I will do my best, but I can't necessarily because some of your questions are very, very deep and very, very profound, and they are not going to be handled in 60 seconds flat. So here's what I'm going to do. This morning, I'm actually going to just keep marching through the stack of questions that I've been given. I was, there were a bunch of questions that were submitted online. There were several more questions that were submitted this morning. And so what I'm going to do is starting in the 830 service, I'm going to start just working my way through the pile. And then we're going to stop at a certain point so that we can continue with the rest of the worship service. And then at the 10 o'clock service, I'm going to pick up where I left off. And I'm going to add any new questions to the pile. So that the 8.30 and the 10 o'clock are actually going to be one extended message, which we are then going to edit and post on our website so that you get all the questions that were asked this morning there and recorded for you. Okay, and you can do that by going to our website, tlcforyou.org forward slash tkw slash messages. Okay, so go ahead and uh, you can go there. But here's the other thing. If I have more questions that I don't get to by the end of the 10 o'clock service, I am then going to answer those questions one question a day during the lunch hour at noon on Facebook Live, on our Facebook page. I'll take one question a day so that no matter what, I'm going to get to every single question that is, a- that is asked. Okay? That is my promise. I just might not get to it right now, but I will get to it. But a couple other things that I want to say about Ask Anything before we dive into the questions that you have for this morning. First and foremost, my commitment is that I am going to answer these questions with the same dignity with which they are asked. I recognize that these are questions that you or your loved ones have been wrestling with. And so I'm going to treat them with that respect. Uh, I'm going to do my best to answer them. And if I don't have an answer or I'm unsure, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that. <laughs> and just say, I, I don't know, but I will look into it. And it might even be a question that I go do some research on and then circle back to and do a Facebook Live about. But I'm going to answer the, the, these questions with the same dignity in which you're asking. I'm assuming that you are asking honest questions that you're really wrestling with. Second thing is don't get discouraged if the initial answer doesn't seem satisfying. Okay, I have a short amount of time. I'm trying to get through a lot of questions. Many of these questions require a lot more study and research. And oftentimes, people came to Jesus with questions, and they walked away after having heard the initial answer and weren't satisfied, and later ended up circling back and seeing that maybe he really did know what he was talking about. Now, I'm not Jesus, but here's my point. Don't settle for a short answer. I'm going to do my best to kind of give you a 50,000-foot overview. But see that as an invitation to go deeper. See that as an invitation to explore further. And so that brings me to kind of my third point. Keep searching. Maybe even join us for the Explore God series as we continue to tackle these big questions, okay? Just a couple things that I would ask as we dive into our questions. So with that in mind, we're going to go to our questions. Now, like I said, there were several questions that were submitted online, and there were several questions that you guys uh, wrote in. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of like do a back and forth. I'm going to take an online question, and then I'm going to take a question that you asked, you know, this morning and submitted on your cards, and I'll go back to an online question. I'll just kind of try to move through those as much as I can. And the first question I'm going to tackle is an online question, and I'm tackling it first because tons of people asked this question. Lots and lots of people submitted this one. And so I'm actually going to take a little more time with this question. So here is the question that was asked. Are you saying that a supreme being created the sun by saying, let there be light? When were Adam and Eve born? How do you account for early human beings like Australopithecines? What about dinosaurs? How do you reconcile evolution and the creation accounts in the Bible? Okay, that's actually like, five or six questions, but they all are related to the same kind of core question, which is this question about origins. 
And so I'm really glad that people are asking this question because this is, a, this is a very real question for a lot of people. I know it was for me because there are many people who, when they get into like high school biology or they go into college and they start studying biology, oftentimes this question of evolution and, uh, and, the, and um, basically this idea that life could develop slowly over time through random processes and natural events is often one that derails a lot of people in faith. And for me as a young man who didn't initially believe, I saw evolution as kind of like my trump card. I was like, you know, okay, see, this just shows that the Bible is nonsense. And so I want to take some time with this question because it's a big one that a lot of people ask, and I want to handle it by kind of taking it one piece at a time. Okay, so let's start with that first, that first question. Are you saying that a supreme being created the sun by saying, let there be light? No, I'm not. I'm saying that a supreme being created the entire universe by saying, let there be light. Okay, it's far more drastic than that, not just the sun. I'm saying that in the beginning, God created all things. Okay? That's actually what we read when we get to Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Likewise, in John chapter 1, it says that by, through him, all things were made. And apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, many people take, uh, take issue with that because of the fact that they say, well, you know, that's, uh, that's just a faith statement. We know that the universe began with a big bang. You know, if you look all the way back, you kind of see that, that, that all of the evidence of physics seems to point to this one thing happening. Um, there are other theories out there. Some people have said, well, the universe is eternal, but uh, that's largely been debunked by the scientific community. They've said that when you look at like the laws of entropy and you look at the outward expansion of the universe, it really does not seem that it was eternal. It really does seem like it had a beginning or a starting point. Okay? And, but many people have said, but why appeal to God to say that God was the start of that? You know, it, it, is, isn't it possible that in the vacuum that, that something just... Some, something happened and something burst onto the scene. That's actually what a lot of scientists appeal to. But here's the funny thing about that response. That is just as much a faith statement as saying God did it. Because number one, you have no evidence for that. Number two, it contradicts every other law of science. That if something has a beginning, usually it has something that causes it. Okay? And suddenly we start to appeal to, well, then it just magically happened. And I, I find this really, really funny because of the fact that reputable physicists have actually addressed this. I love what Paul Davies says in his book, God and the New Physics. He says, It is hard to resist the impression that the present structure of the universe, apparently so sensitive to minor alterations in numbers, has been rather carefully thought out. The seemingly miraculous concurrence of these numerical values must remain the most compelling evidence for cosmic design. See, you know, astrophysicists looking at, like, the constant laws of physics, at the fine-tuning that it would take for things like galaxies to form, and the bizarre existence of this tiny blue planet that we call Earth, that if it was only a few inches off in terms of its nearness or, for, or distance from the sun, we would be toast. They look at that and they say, there is no way you can deny the fact that some all-powerful intelligence has designed this. Okay, it's not just people of faith saying this, physicists are saying this. And even physicists who don't believe in God have to default to words like miracle to account for the start of all things, to account for the Big Bang. It seems like, you know, although we know nothing that has a beginning uh, just starts from nothing, that they all have a cause, it would seem with the Big Bang that it's kind of a miracle. Well, that's a faith statement too. 
So where do I get this idea that there's an all-powerful God creating all things? Well, yes, the constants of, of physical laws, I think, is one. I mean, if everything were truly random and it was just an explosion, we shouldn't, you know, why would we default to saying, oh, but look at all these universal constants? That's one. But another one really does go back to this evolution question. This idea of Adam and Eve and how do we account for evolution and things like that because evolution too seems to point to a grand design. Okay, it seems to point to a grand design. And, and furthermore, evolution as a theory is increasingly um, coming under fire from people within the scientific community. Not just pastors. Not just Christians but actually non-Christians within the scientific community looking at the theory of evolution and the, and the so-called evidence for it and saying it is increasingly flimsy. And to give you an example of this, let's look at two things that Darwin himself said about his theory. Because there's, cause, cause I want to set up our terms really clearly. When we talk about evolution, there's actually two ways of talking about evolution. There's microevolution, in which within a given species, little adaptations over time can develop. Okay, we actually see microevolution all the time every year when you get a flu shot. Okay, we're introducing something into your body that's allowing your body to adapt so that it can better fight off a disease. That's called microevolution. You can also call it adaptation. But macroevolution is this idea that we all come from kind of one common ancestor, and though we all may have started off as like a fish, over time some of us developed into mammals and some of us developed into reptiles, and basically that one species becomes another species. And that's really what, what Darwin was positing. He's saying that from simple life, more and more complex forms of life developed. But here's what Darwin said about his own theory. He said, the lack of fossil evidence is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection that can be urged against the theory. He said, you know, that, that there's no fossil evidence that actually shows transitional forms between one species and another species. But Darwin was so convinced of his own theory, he thought that over time, as we got better at paleontology, as we found more and more in the fossil record, that his theory would be proven true. But here's something fascinating. It hasn't been. David Ropp, who's a paleontologist and was once the curator of the Field Museum of Chicago, published in an article called Conflicts Between Darwin and Paleontology the following thing. He said, we are now about 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded, and we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. He says, we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions more fossils, and what we find is that this idea that species transition from one form of life to another form of life is becoming increasingly and increasingly slim. We haven't found them. And you would expect that if this were so widespread and this was the way that life developed, that we would find them. In fact, what the fossil record is actually showing is exactly the opposite. There's something called the Cambrian Explosion, which basically says that during the Cambrian period, which is about 541 million years ago, life suddenly exploded into all of its phyla on Earth. That before that, there were like single-celled organisms, and then all of a sudden, boom, you have all the existing phyla of today's like animal kingdom suddenly show up on the scene. Now, I, I heard one person kind of giving an illustration of this. He said, let's say that, that you're standing on a football field in the end zone, and that's like the beginning of all life. And you start walking across the football field until you get to the 16th yard line on the other side. 
And then between the 16th yard line and the 15th yard line, suddenly life shows up. He says that's basically what the Cambrian explosion shows. That's what the fossil record bears out, that something dramatic happened, and all of a sudden life showed up. Okay? I'm not making this stuff up. This is stuff that scientists themselves are starting to have to wrestle with. They found that there's just not a lot of evidence for this. But here's another thing that Darwin said, and I think that this is the other really difficult one you have to wrestle with. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, then my theory would absolutely break down. Here's the interesting thing. In 1994, a molecular biologist by the name of Michael Behe basically took that to task. And in a book called Darwin's Black Box, showed countless examples that disproved Darwin's theory showing how complexity within the body's organs and, and organ systems directly disproves Darwin's theory. So when we sit there and we say, well, you know, I believe in evolution, so the creation story can't be true, we have to actually start to criticize evolution just a little bit. What basis do we have for holding that theory? Because what the scientific community is increasingly finding is that that theory just doesn't hold water anymore. That by itself, life does not go from simple to complex. That one species doesn't, over the course of time, develop through small little uh, infinitesimal changes into a brand new species. There's just not evidence for it. In fact, Sir Francis Crick, a Nobel Prize winner in physiology, said the origin of life appears to be almost a miracle. See, there that is again. Scientists defaulting to that word. <laughs> Origin of life appears to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. Nobel Prize winners. I find it fascinating that we often go to evolution as the trump card against this idea of creation. And what we're finding is that if we take science seriously and if we evaluate the theory of evolution on its own standard and by its own basis, we are finding that greater and greater numbers of scientists are starting to say, you know, it seems like there is an intelligence behind this. We don't know who it is. We don't know very much about it. But there is no way life develops on its own. There's no way a big bang just happens without somebody to set it off. There's no way that life shows up on this planet unless somebody is superintending the process. In fact, I, I, think, that it's, uh, it's just, I think that it's really, really interesting that, that people often set up evolution and creation as if they're two polar opposites. And so that's kind of the final dichotomy that I want to unpack a little bit, is how do you reconcile evolution and the creation accounts in the Bible? Well, really, there's kind of five options just to let you know. We typically set them up as, as if there's only two. We say there's either naturalistic evolution, that all the life that we have was simply the development over time of random processes that just kind of happens to, to come together, and now we have the world that we have. That's called naturalistic evolution. No God, no creator, just kind of happened randomly over time. Then on the other side of the spectrum uh, is what's called fiat creationism, which is no, God created all things in six 24-hour days. You can read it in Genesis 1. And we kind of set those two things up and we say these are your only options, but the reality is, is that people, philosophers, scientists would say there's actually several other options. Another option is deistic evolution, which deistic evolution basically says that there was some sort of God or creator who started the whole thing with a bang and then just sat back, sat back and let everything kind of go its course. 
okay? That's, that's one option. That there was some person who started it off but really hasn't been involved ever since. The other option is theistic evolution, which says that there is a creator who started the whole thing and has been, through natural processes, superintending its development all along the way. Through natural processes, over time, superintending its development all along the way. And the final option is what's called progressive creationism, which says that it is a combination of God's superintending natural processes, but also intervening at decisive moments to do a new creative act. Okay? These are really the five options. Now, two of these options, I would say, are non-Christian options. The naturalistic uh, evolution view and the deistic evolution view, simply because we do believe there's a creator, that he was very interested in his creation, that he's been taking care of it from day one. These other three, I would argue you can actually be a Bible-believing Christian and hold these views. Because it really comes down to how you read Genesis chapter 1. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, it's kind of an interesting chapter, and it's baffled biblical scholars for centuries because on the one hand, it seems to communicate historical truths about how the world was made. There's order, there's design, God creates environments first and then fills them, but then it talks about day and night and, and time and space. But then there's also elements of poetry. There's a rhyme scheme to it. There's repetition and parallelism, all features of Hebrew poetry. And so Christians have debated, well, is it poetry or is it history? People who adopt the theistic evolution standpoint that God worked through kind of natural processes over long periods of time would say that Genesis 1 is primarily poetry. And that's a legitimate reading of the text. People who adopt the fiat creationism once say, no, it's primarily history. This is telling us not just who created all things and why he created them, but how he created them, six 24-hour days. But the progressive creationism view is one that basically says it is communing historical truth, but in poetic language. That this idea that everything was created over a span of time with order and design and purpose, that it had a particular progression to it, that there's one behind it who set it up in the way he did, but that it's expressed in beautiful poetry is kind of the progressive creationism view. And these people kind of take it and they say, well, it, it's, it is history, but it's poetic because of the fact that one of the things that it says in First Peter is that uh, to the Lord, a thousand days is like a year, and a year is like a thousand, uh, uh, sorry, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. They say, you know, time doesn't quite work the same for God as it does for us. And this is how you can reconcile, actually, what we see in the scientific record to what we see in Scripture. Now, here's the thing. You can kind of tell which one I lean toward. <laughs> I lean toward the progressive creationism one because I think it makes the most sense of both the Bible and the scientific data, but I could be wrong. It's very possible that an all-powerful God could have done it in six 24-hour days. He's able to do that. It's very possible that he could have, over a long period of time, superintended the process through natural means. He could have done that. I, don't, I ultimately don't know. It doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is the who. God did it. Why? Because he, it was out of his love that he created all things. And what I find so funny is the more you read what scientists have to say about our origins, about the beginning of life, about the Big Bang, is more and more scientists are actually landing in the theistic evolution and the progressive creationism camps. Doesn't necessarily mean they're Christians yet. Doesn't mean that they necessarily believe in Jesus, so they're following him, but they're saying, when I look at the heavens, 
what I see is that they declare the handiwork of God. That when I look at life and how it's progressed, what I've seen is that it doesn't happen without an intelligent designer behind it. Which is why I think a good way of kind of summarizing what's happening within the scientific community is something that was uh, summarized by Robert Jastrow. He was actually uh, the first chairman of the Lunar Exploration Committee for NASA. Okay, so a kind of a, a genius in his own time said this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> a guy from NASA saying that. So when it comes to this idea of science versus faith, what I think we're seeing is that it's actually a false dichotomy. And that the more you study science and you look at our origins as a species, you look at our origins of the universe, what you're seeing is scientists themselves are saying there has got to be a higher intelligence behind this and we see evidence of him all over the place. Okay? I told you that was going to take a long time. Sorry about that. A couple of resources, though, if you want to go deeper. Don't take my word for it. You can read uh, Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. You can read Icons of Evolution, Science or Myth by Jonathan Wells. Or if you want to get a good overview of all the different scientific arguments, Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel is actually a good overview. I personally like it actually for the bibliography. Because if you want to go even deeper into any one of these areas, there's a ton of books written by geniuses in the various fields of the sciences that you can study. Okay? Just a couple of resources. All right, so I had to tackle that one. I tackled it because tons of people online were asking. Thank you for indulging me and allowing me to do that. Let's tackle a question um, that was actually asked this morning. Okay, this one is, why does God allow poverty and suffering? Um, we are actually going to tackle that in our series uh, in week three. Uh, why does God allow pain and suffering? Okay, so if you ask that question, thanks for the question. Week three, join us for when we talk about pain and suffering. Um, in terms of our uh, series. Another question somebody asked is, how can I serve God if I am physically and emotionally in pain? That's a great question, and that's a very, very honest question. I really appreciate um, you asking that. I think it can be tough, uh, especially for a person of faith, when you encounter something that keeps you from uh, being able to serve in the way that you desire. Uh, when you feel like your physical ailments or your sicknesses or things like that have become barriers to you following God, being a good witness for God. Um, but what I would also say is I want you to know you're not alone. That Christians have always struggled with um, pain and suffering. We're human too. Um, and one of the places that I often go to um, for comfort when I'm kind of wrestling or I see other people wrestling um, with physical ailments, is something that um, Paul himself said. This is in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take my, he was talking about his own kind of pain, his own thorn in his flesh, to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the greatest leaders of the Christian church, the Apostle Paul, knew what it was like to struggle with pain and suffering. And yet he still was able to serve and plant churches. 
that what he found is actually his own story of suffering and the hope that he had in Jesus became the way that he ministered. That God took his pain and suffering and as he wrestled with it in prayer, he turned it around and said, this is how I can serve the people around me who wrestle with the same thing. And if you look at the history of Christianity and you look at the faithful Christians who've gone before us, you see countless examples of people who've taken their pain and suffering and turned it into the very place from which God does the most powerful work. One of my favorite examples is uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her. She was a, she's a quadriplegic. She broke her neck in a diving accident and really has not had the use of her arms and legs since she was 17. But she has used her story to publish countless books, pieces of art, music, and start a foundation to help people who are struggling with disabilities to find their purpose in life, all born out of her own story of walking with Christ. So don't let your pain or your struggle disqualify you. And if you need someone to walk alongside you, to minister to you, and to help you find that kind of purpose and that calling, that's what we're here for as a church. We want to walk with you. So come and talk to me. Talk to me after the service. I'd love to, to help you guys and get connected um, and to find ways that we can walk alongside you as you wrestle with that. A very honest question. Thank you. Let's go to another online question. I think maybe this will be my last one. We'll see how fast I can get through it. Okay, once believers die, does their spirit go to heaven or do they sleep until Christ's return? Do they see Jesus? These are really, that's a really good question. Several other people actually ask this on cards too. Um, what happens when you die? Does your soul go to heaven right away and stuff like that? So this is kind of a nice overlap between uh, online and uh, the questions you asked live. Um, two places that kind of help with understanding and answering this question are Philippians 1.23 and 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 18. So Philippians 1.23 and 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 18. Um, Philippians says this, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 23. This is Paul talking. He says, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul's saying that when I die, I'm going to go and be with Christ, and that's actually better. So that's the one side that says when you die, your soul actually goes to be with Jesus. But then there's another passage, and this is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and following, that says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that um, Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to talk about the coming again of, of Jesus. So on the one hand, you have Paul saying, I desire to go and be with Christ. But on the other hand, you have Paul also saying, same guy, that we go to sleep. So which is it? I'm not entirely sure. Okay, I will tell you that honestly, because the Bible actually doesn't say a whole lot about what happens to our souls between the time that we die and the time that we are all resurrected. Because the ultimate hope of the Christian is not that we would be like a disembodied spirit floating on a cloud for all eternity, but rather that we would re-inhabit our bodies, that our bodies would be, would be made new without pain and suffering and limitations, and that we would dwell with our God forever in a remade heavens and earth. That's our ultimate hope and destiny. So what happens? Many scholars trying to take these two passages together have said that, that what happens when a Christian dies is that our soul is at rest in Jesus. 
that it's almost like a sleep state, but you're still conscious of his presence. You're still conscious of his love. You're not really aware of the passage of time. You are simply at peace, being with your Lord until the day that all of us are resurrected. So for people who've said, well, you know, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that when I die, I know I'm going to see Jesus, that I'm going to be with Jesus, you can still take comfort in that. Because that is what, Christian, uh, what Scripture seems to say, especially in that Philippians 1.23. But what 1 Thessalonians 4 is reminding us is that is not our ultimate destiny. Our ultimate destiny is that we will be resurrected people. That you will once more rise again to new life. That just as Jesus' tomb was empty, so your tomb will be empty on that day when he comes again. And you will arise in glory, be made new. That there will be no more death or sickness or dying or pain any longer. That's actually what Revelation 21 tells us. And that we will live again in a, in a wonderful kingdom with Jesus and with all those who preceded us in faith. And i got to be honest, guys, I'm really looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to the day when I can hug my grandmother again. I'm looking forward to the day when we will get to hold the child we lost. I'm looking forward to the day when I can sit around a campfire with Moses and say, how crazy was that on Sinai? I mean, I, I want to meet these people and I want to do life with them. And that's a great gift and a great promise and an ultimate comfort. Our ultimate hope is not in the fact that we're going to see Jesus when we die. Our ultimate hope is that just as his tomb was empty, so our tombs will be empty. And we will live again with him for all eternity. That's where our hope lies. So yes, when we pass from this world, we don't have to be afraid. We can take comfort in knowing that we will be with our Lord. But we take greater comfort and extreme joy in the knowledge that one day we will rise again. And the reason we have that hope is what Paul says. He says, because Jesus rose again. This is the central claim of the Christian faith, is that Jesus' tomb was empty. That in 33 AD, he was buried on a Friday. He was guarded by Roman soldiers. And then on the Sunday, that tomb was empty. The the stone had been thrown aside. And what we see is that if you go back and you study history, over and over again, the testimony of history is on the balanced side toward that claim that Jesus Christ rose again. That the best possible alternative that even people in Jesus' day who didn't believe in him could come up with was somehow the disciples must have stolen the body. Average fishermen from Galilee somehow overpowered Roman soldiers, the best military force on the planet, to steal his body after rolling away a four-ton rock? Our evidence hinges on the fact that his resurrection happened in time and space, and so will ours when he comes again. That's where our hope is found. I do have a question that was uh, submitted Uh, in our last service. We were talking a lot about death and what happens after you die. Where does your soul go? And is there a resurrection? And there was a follow-up question uh, that someone had, and they're asking, is cremation okay? Will God find all my ashes? Okay, people really want to know, and and they are wrestling with that and saying, what what do I do? What do I I leave in, in my wishes? Should I be buried? Is it okay to be cremated? And the answer is yes, it's fine to be cremated. Okay, God created everything from nothing. And he formed man from the dust of the ground. I'm fairly certain he knows what to do with your ashes. 
and that that is not out of his realm of, of possibility. Now, if you're wrestling with that whole idea that God created everything um, and uh, that, that he can form something from nothing, uh, know that that was actually a question we wrestled with uh, in our last service at the 830 service. I had a ton of questions about evolution and the beginning of life and stuff like that. That's all going to be on the podcast. Okay, so you can, you can listen to that there. But God knows what to do with your ashes. Okay, he's not freaked out by that. It's not a big problem for him. Well in his control. Uh, also, another question that was submitted this morning that's kind of related to the evolution question, so I will attack, uh, um, address it right, right now and just, just tag on to what we said before. The question was, how did God survive the Big Bang? Um, God is not subject to the processes that he starts. Okay, if he's big enough to start the Big Bang, it's not really a big deal to him. Okay, and we know this is true for anybody who's taken a high school chemistry class. Okay, because in high school chemistry, you get to play with Bunsen burners. Right? Now, Bunsen burners could burn you, but in a controlled and experimental environment where you're in charge, you know how to operate those things, right? So that you don't burn them. You light stuff on fire. You see chemical reactions, but it doesn't bother you. Why? Because you are outside and above and beyond and in control of the whole process. God is the same with his creation, okay? So how did he survive the Big Bang? The same way you survived high school chemistry, okay? He's above and beyond the processes, okay? He took care of the experiment and knew what was going on, so no worries there, okay? Let me see if I can uh, address another question, though, um, that came to us from online. Here's an online question that we had. Okay. Oh, we addressed this one. Okay, uh, this is the question. Once believers die, does their spirit go to heaven or do they sleep until Christ's return? Do they see Jesus? Uh, we addressed this in the 830 service, so go back and uh, listen to that. Um, we took a look at a couple of passages together, so I think that that's an important question. But there was a, a submitted question. Uh, someone said, my son's friend died yesterday. And so there, I have questions about free will and the fact that God knows when we die. Uh, can we affect change? First and foremost, if you submitted this question, I am so sorry for your loss. Um, I'm sorry for the loss of um, your son's friend. And I know that, that that always brings a lot of questions. The question about uh, free will, the fact that God knows when we die, can we affect change? Depends. One of the things that God tells us is that he always hears our prayers. Always. And then he always answers our prayers. But prayer is a conversation between us and God. It's not simply a, a command that we can submit and get an automatic reply that we desire. And sometimes God's answers to our prayers is yes. Sometimes his answers to our prayers are no. Sometimes his answers to our prayers is wait and you will see. And so sometimes when we pray for healing and it doesn't come, that can be a very, very difficult time, I think, for many of us. But one of the things that God always assures us is that no matter what his purposes are, he uses them for the good. It's actually one of the things the scripture tells us is God works all things together for the good of those who love him, even our deaths. And I've actually seen how God has used even death and loss to point people to the hope that we have. I've seen it in my own life. At the passing of my grandmother became an amazing opportunity to bear witness to the hope that she had in Jesus. So much so that even her hospice nurse started asking questions about God and the afterlife and how can we have comfort and hope and peace in the midst of our loss. 
God can carry you through any season that you will possibly face. Sometimes his answers aren't what we had hoped for. But what we can know is that he does work for the good of those who love him. And ultimately, when it comes to death, we know that God has an answer for that because Jesus rose again from the dead. There is resurrection. There is hope. There is new life. That's where we kind of hang it all. That's where we put all of our hope. We pin it to that fact that Jesus' tomb was empty, and so our tombs will be empty as well. So death is not the end for us. All right? But I'm sorry for your loss. I know that that's very, very difficult. If you want to talk, we do have um, Grief Care available as a ministry that we do to help you as you continue to wrestle with your grief. And we'd love to sit with you and, and wrestle through that together and sit side by side as you mourn the loss of your loved one. All right, let's tackle another uh, online question. Okay. Since there are many world cultures who have believed in one supreme God, from the ancient Inca to the East Asian Karem, aren't those who faithfully serve their God on a path to heaven? Shouldn't God allow good people into heaven? So this was submitted online, and actually I think someone this morning submitted a very similar question, so I I just dug through my pile and found it. It's, uh, will Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and other faiths go directly to hell since they don't believe in Jesus? So kind of a related question, right? We live in a pluralistic world where there are countless religions out there all across the face of the globe, right? And this question often comes up, how can you assert that your way is, is, the, is the only way, right? Now, let me say this. We are taking a whole sermon to address this as a part of the Explore God series. Um, we have, uh, in week four, deals with the question, is Christianity too narrow? Is it too narrow? What about all these other world's religions? So I'm not going to go in and kind of address every single world religion here. I just, you're going to get a whole sermon on this. So please join us for that weekend. But let me, let me at least address a couple things about this question, because I think there are a couple of assumptions here that that are important to deal with and to, and to at least name. And hopefully that will then help you as we enter into week four of this coming series. We talk about narrowness and exclusivity in the world's religions. Okay. One of the things that's important to note in underlying a question like this, is it seems to assume that God is subject to our cultural whims. Okay? When we say that there are many world cultures who believe in one supreme God from, you know, aren't those who faithfully serve their God on a path to heaven, it assumes that God, who he is, what he's like, and what his purpose is for life, are are subject to human cultural uh, conventions. And what we would say as, as Christians, and, and honestly, if you really stop and think about who God is, if you believe that there is a supreme being over all, is that God is not simply a cultural construct. That he's just as real as gravity. Which means he's not subject to cultural conventions. Okay, gravity is true whether you live in India or North America. Okay, if you jump out of a plane with a parachute, you're going to meet a very sad end. Okay, gravity works, period. It's a reality of our existence. And so to say, well, is it okay if, you know, they believe this about God and believe that about God? Not if he's a supreme being who orders all things and is just as real as the gravity that keeps us circling around the sun. Okay, God is not subject to our cultural conventions. Now, some people have said, but, but you know, God is unknowable, and these are all of our attempts to just search for him. But see, at this point, there's another assumption here, and, that means, and the assumption is this, that God is actually indifferent to what we think about him and doesn't care about our pursuit of him. If his desire is to be unknowable and be a mystery, do you really think that any of the world's religions 
are going to possibly learn anything of value about him if it is his sole purpose to remain hidden from us? There's no way. So then the other is that he doesn't want to be known or he doesn't really care what we think about him. And is that a God you really want to spend your life trying to understand and relate to? It would be better to be an agnostic at that point. Because what God has basically said is, I don't really care what you think about me. I don't really have an opinion about what you think about me. I don't really want a relationship with you. See, there's, there's some really damaging assumptions underneath here. That's not a God anybody would want to know, much less spend your time pursuing. It wouldn't make sense. But if God is as real as the gravity around us, and he is a God who desires to be known, then it means that he's going to reveal certain things about himself, about himself and what it means to relate to him. Furthermore, if you look at the different world's religions, and I had an undergraduate degree in religious studies, what you find is they don't all believe the same thing. That they might say that, yes, there's one God, but is it one God or is it one divine reality? Is he personal or impersonal? Is there an afterlife or do you just get annihilated and disappear after you work off your karma? You see, all of them actually say radically different things about who God is, about what he's like and what it means to follow him. And they are mutually exclusive. And when people say, well, no, they really all say the same thing, that too is an exclusive truth claim. Because what you're saying is you're saying, all those other religions that insist that their way is the only way are wrong, I know that they're all going to the same place. They really all mean the same thing. My way is right. And you need to abandon your way of thinking about God and adopt mine. You see, you never escape from this problem of exclusivity. There's always someone who claims to have the truth. Every way, even the apparently universalist way, is an exclusive way, is a narrow way. Okay? We have to address these underlying assumptions. Now, like I said, we're going we're gonna to attack this head-on with an entire sermon in week four of Explore God. So join us for that. But there's another question here that is worth addressing before we move on, and it's, shouldn't God allow good people into heaven? It depends on what you mean by goodness. Okay? Because I would say, yes, good people should get into heaven. In fact, at one point in Scripture, it even says that if you abide by the law, it will save you. So it says in the Torah. But here's the problem the standard of goodness is unattainable. Because the standard for goodness that God sets is Himself. Throughout Scripture, God says, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. And we might say, well, that's unfair. But the reality is, Scripture tells us we are made in God's image. We are made to be like him. To live out his purposes and his plan for our lives. And he says, you need to be perfect as I am perfect. Which means that if you are counting on your goodness to get you into heaven, you are actually counting on something that cannot deliver. And here's a really good example of this. We just celebrated it. New Year's. People make resolutions in the new year, right? With the best of intentions, we're going to do this New Year's thing. I'm going to lose weight this year. I'm going to be nicer to people. I'm going to stop, uh, you know, uh, swearing at people who cut me off on the Eisenhower. Like, this is my New Year's. How well do you do keeping those? You see, over and over again, we as people say, oh, I can be good. This is, I'm going to love people. I'm going to serve them. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm going to you know, do all these things. But we don't live up to our own standards. So what makes us think we can live up to God's? See, people often say, oh, well, 
Why can't God just let good people into heaven? Well, he can and he does, but the problem is nobody's good. Nobody's good enough. And if that's what you're counting on to get you into heaven, you're counting on something that just is not going to deliver, and, I'm, and, and I would be concerned. See, the message of Christianity is you will never be good enough, but the uh, good news of Christianity is that God has already done it for you. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all are also freely justified by his grace as a gift that comes to us through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came and took our place. He lived the life we should have lived. He was totally perfect in every way. He died the death that we should have died as condemned people who are not good enough. And he rose again to new life to said, whoever trusts in me stops trying to earn it, but understands that it's a gift given to you, will be with me and will be with my Father in heaven. If you are counting on goodness as your way to get in with God, you are building your entire house on sand, on thin ice. But the good news of Christianity says that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you've failed to do, God loves you, he has rescued you, and you no longer have to earn it. You can be his child and dwell with him forever, securely in his kingdom, knowing that he loves you. All right? That's, that's, that's the message that we believe in. So, phenomenal question, worthy of an entire sermon. You will get it on week four of Explore God. Please join us. That's a great time to bring that question. So, so thank you for the question. It was a phenomenal question. And we're going to take a lot more time to deal with it. Okay? Uh, I'm going to take another card question. <laughs> This is cute. How old will you be tomorrow? Tomorrow's my birthday. So I didn't write this. <laughs> 35. Thanks. All right, moving on. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, ooh, I got a Bible question. Jeremiah foretold the return of the exiles after 70 years. Uh, this is Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12. But seeing as how exiles were returning in various groups between 50 and 100 years after being taken captive, how was the 70-year prophecy fulfilled? Wow, really good question. Okay, I'm going to do a little unpacking for those of you who have no idea what this question is asking. Um, the story in the, Old, uh, in the Old Testament was that God's chosen people, the people of Israel, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. In the book of Exodus, he brought them to Canaan where they dwelled in the promised land. And uh, they set up a, a kingdom and a monarchy and they were to dwell in the promised land as his representatives to the world. Living according to his standards, living by faith in him according to his promises. But what we learn is that over time they quickly fall away from God. They turn their backs on him. They engage in the same kind of unjust practices as their surrounding neighbors. And God sends them prophets saying, guys, turn around, come back to me. Otherwise, I'm going to put an end to all your wickedness. I have to stop it. I wouldn't be a God of justice if I allowed you to continue to oppress the people around you. Well, they didn't listen and they were eventually, uh, God used the nation of Babylon to carry them off into exile in the 6th century B.C. Now, one of the things that he said to them, though, through the prophet Jeremiah is he said, but I will bring you back in 70 years. You will return to the land that I promised to give to your ancestors. So the question is, when exactly did that happen? Because there was time, even during the exile and well after the exile, where the Jews lived among the nations. They lived in Babylon and Persia, and they kind of trickled back and stuff like that. So when are we dating that prophecy to? Um, and the answer to that is actually in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1 is the story of the return from exile. 
And here's what it says. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And then it goes on to state the proclamation. Basically, the proclamation is, the people of Israel, who were carried off into exile by Babylon, are now free to go home. And he actually provides a way, he he gives them back all the things from their temple that were stolen, and he allows them to return to resettle the land. That's typically when we date the end of that, pro, uh, the, that prophecy being fulfilled is uh, based on the proclamation of King Cyrus. Okay, And it is about 70 years after they were carried off into exile. So kind of a good little Bible question to ask. All right. Oh, my goodness. Do I have another internet question before I go to this one? Because this one's hard. Okay, I'll stick with this one. No more internet questions. So I got a really tough one. This is good. You guys have some, man, you have some good questions. This is probably going to be my last question for today. Sorry. Um, If Satan was in God's presence, then removed, how can we be assured of staying in his presence? Ooh, that's good. I like that question. So the story of Satan, right, according to the Bible, is that he was actually one of the angels. Known as Lucifer, he ministered in the presence of God, and according to Scripture, he rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven. Okay, that's the story, uh, basically how it goes. So the question is, but, so then if, if he who dwelt in the presence of God was cast out of God's presence, what about me? This is for that person who understands the whole good people don't go to heaven thing. Good for you. You were paying attention to my answer to the last question. But there's a lot of crisis that kind of comes with this. It says, but what, what about me? What Can I be cast out of God's presence? And a couple things are helpful here. First and foremost, remember this. You are covered by the blood of the Lamb. If you're a follower of Jesus, his sacrifice gives you access to God. It's not on the basis of what you've done or failed to do that you stand in his presence. You have been freely justified by his grace. Again, going back to Romans chapter 3. Okay? Romans chapter 6, uh, 23 says it really well. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. That means that no matter what you've done or ever will do, you are covered and you are welcome in the presence of the king. Okay? That is where your hope lies. So going back to Satan for a second, the reason why Satan was cast out is because he actively rebelled against God. It wasn't like he was going along one day, made a mistake, tripped, and fell out of heaven. Okay? Likewise, for you, if you're sitting there saying, well, I just, I just committed this sin again. Am I still in the presence of God? Does he still love me? Look, you don't lose your salvation by accident. And if you are sitting there asking the question, I've, I've messed up, I've done wrong, am I still in the presence? You're okay, you haven't lost your faith yet. Okay? The very fact that you're worrying about it is evidence to it. Okay? It's an invitation God is saying, I know you did wrong, you did wrong. Know that I love you. Repent, come back to me. You're good, you're fine, don't worry. Christ has covered you. But there's one thing that's important to note. It's in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews does say you can still rebel. You won't lose your salvation by accident. But you can still rebel against your God, and on that ground, you are in danger. And here's what it says. I'm going to go straight to the scripture itself because I think that's the important one. It's always to go there. This is actually a very scary verse, by the way. This is Hebrews 6, verse 4 and following. It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, 
who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who've fallen away to be brought back again to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It's a scary verse. If you're not terrified by that verse, you should be. It's there for a reason. It's a warning. It's saying, do not rebel against your God. In fact, that word for fallen is the same word that you would have gone back and seen in the Old Testament for when Adam and Eve rebel against God, the fall, right? Okay, do not rebel against God. So what he's saying is you don't lose your salvation by accident, and if you're worried because of a sin that you've committed that you've lost it, good news, Jesus covers you. But beware the day that comes when you say, I don't believe, I hate God, I've turned my back on him. Because what it's saying here is that there's, it's impossible to restore somebody. But here's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and I think this is, this is important. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work or the love that you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. And we want you to show the same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. The writer of Hebrews says, yes, beware of rebelling, but be more confident of your salvation, knowing that you are covered by the grace of God, that it's because of him you are welcomed into his presence. And nothing you've ever done or can do or will do can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord. It's a great promise, actually, from uh, Romans chapter 8. So there's a warning there, right? Don't rebel. But also, some comfort. Cling to your salvation. Know that you are welcomed into God's presence because of what Christ has done for you. That is where we base our hope. It's not on our goodness. It's not on our performance. It's not on none of these things. It's a promise that we've given through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is, I think that's all I got time for. We got a, the rest of a worship service to do. Man, we've got some great questions, though. Uh, more questions from Scripture about how do we apply Scripture. How are God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit one entity? Um, is there uh, hope for those who take their own life? I mean, my goodness, you guys have asked some amazing questions. So here's my promise to you. Once a day on Facebook, I'm going to tackle one of these questions. We'll post it Facebook Live at noon. If you miss it at noon, don't worry. It will be on the, on the thread. So you can just kind of scroll down and see all the videos that I'll be posting. I do promise I'm going to get to every single one of these questions because they are great questions. Thank you for the time. And remember this. Jesus loves questions. He delights in answering them. And in fact, what he tells his disciples when they were confused, they came to him after they were confused about one of his teachings, and they said, what did that teaching just mean? Jesus' response, he says, to you has been given the, the secrets of the kingdom of God. Jesus loves it when we ask questions. He delights in answering them and pointing us to answers which show us the truth. So if I didn't get to your question right now, or you were not satisfied with the answer that I gave, keep asking. Keep coming to God with questions. Follow up with me. Say, hey, you didn't quite understand my question. I'd like to talk further about that. Let's do that. But join us for Explore God. Join us in this series as we take a look at these deeper questions together. Join a discussion group. We have some small groups. I'll tell you about those later in the service that you can sign up for to actually go even deeper on these questions. And join us on the weekend as we tackle some of the big questions together. So with that in mind that I want to close in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks 
that you do not shy away from difficult questions, but rather that you seek to always point us to the truth, that you speak the truth to us that we might be set free, that we might have hope and life eternal. And so, Lord, in the midst of our seeking, we just ask, dearest God, that you would indeed give us wisdom, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand, and that ultimately we would all come to know you as Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.